If you're new here, then you probably have no idea that we're in a series entitled Explore God. And what we are doing in this series is essentially what the name implies. For seven weeks, we are uh, exploring the person and nature of God. And so this week, we are in week five of this series. Uh, this, week started five, this series started five weeks ago. And we began the series by answering the question, does life have a purpose? Then in week two, we answered the question, is there a God? In week three, the question was, why does God allow pain and suffering? In week four, uh, the question was, which was last week, is Christianity too narrow? In week five, which is this week, the question we're going to be answering is, is Jesus really God? Week six is, is the Bible reliable? And then we're concluding the series on week seven with, can I know God personally? And uh, actually, we're doing baptisms on that day. Uh, We have somewhere between 12 to 13 people already signed up. And so if maybe God leads you to take that step, you know, I would love to... And baptize you on that on that last Sunday. So, like I said, this morning the question that we're going to be asking and answering is: Is Jesus really God? Is Jesus Christ really God? Now, I'm, what I'm going to say right now seems like an exaggeration, uh, and pastors are already prone to that, and Hispanics are even more prone to it. So, I have two things going against me, right? But I would argue that this question is by far the most important question that we are going to ask and answer in this series. And, and here's why. Here's why. Because if you believe that Jesus is God, then everything else we talked about in this series matters. But if you don't believe Jesus is God, then nothing else in this series matters. So so literally everything in this series hinges on how you answer this question. If Jesus is God, then everything else we've said matters. If he's not God, then who cares? None of it matters. Does that make sense? That's why I would argue that this is the most important question that we are going to seek to answer, probably the biggest one too, that we are going to seek to answer uh, this morning. Now, the way we are going to do this is I'm going to give you five reasons for why I believe Jesus is God. Now, I don't want to give you a spoiler alert, right? I don't want to give you the ending of the movie, but because we're at church, you probably assume that I believe Jesus is God, right? Like that's I hope I didn't ruin anything for you. So what I want to do uh, for the, the next several minutes is I want to give you, by several, I mean several minutes, all right? Uh, I want to give you five reasons why I believe Jesus is God. Now, some of these reasons are going to come from the Bible, and if you don't believe the Bible is reliable, come back next week and we'll talk about it, okay? So that, that's next week's one. But some of them will come from the Bible, some of them will not. But, but here are the five reasons why I believe that Jesus Christ is God. The first reason is because of the praise he received. The the second reason is because of the people he impacted. The third reason is because of the power he displayed. Uh, The fourth reason is because of the prophecy he fulfilled. And then the final reason is because of the problem that he solved. And so what we're going to do for the rest of our time this morning is go through each one of these reasons uh, and, and see why is Jesus Christ God. Okay, so the first one we're going to start with this morning is the praise he received. One of the reasons, the first reason why I believe Jesus Christ is God is because of the praise that he received while he was on earth. Jesus Christ, like no human and ever in human history, has received the type of praise that, if, that, that, that even if, if, if you got even a quarter or a tenth of what Jesus got, you would have had to be someone very special. But Jesus is the most praised person in human history. And so one of the reasons why I believe Jesus is God is because of the praise that he receives. Now, here's what I need you to know. I'm going to give you some examples of people praising Jesus in the Bible. But before I give you those examples, I need to set the context for you a little bit. Because some of you might be sitting here today, and you're thinking, you know, 
I, I, I appreciate Christianity, I appreciate Jesus, but this whole Jesus is God thing, come on, man, this is, this is a bit much. And what you might be thinking as a modern person is there's so many objections. There are so many things, barriers, if you will, that keep me from believing that Jesus Christ was a God. Well, you know what I would argue? I'm not trying to minimize those barriers. You might have very significant, very appropriate barriers and questions. But what I want you to see is that as we look at these people in the Bible, these people, I would argue, had even greater barriers than you. I'm not trying to minimize yours. I'm just saying that these people in the Bible had greater barriers, and here's why. Because the majority of the people who I'm about to quote were Jewish people. Why is that important? Because outside of Islam, there's never been a more monotheistic religion in history. So Jews believe that Yahweh is God and that's it. So for a Jewish person to say that God is a man is a major intellectual jump. So again, I'm not trying to minimize what you, your barriers are. I don't know what your barriers are. But what I need you to know, because one of the things that can happen when you look at biblical people, Bible people, oh, they're, they're primitive. They're ancient. They'll believe anything. It's all blind faith. And what I want you to know is that it's not. And what I would argue is that these Jewish men and women had a bigger barrier, not a better one, but an even bigger one because of their monotheistic view of the world. Does that make sense? So what I want you to see, well, the way we're going to look at it, that Jesus receives praise before his ministry starts, during his ministry, and after his ministry. Now, let's go to before his ministry. In Luke chapter 2, we are told that Jesus, literally in one chapter of the Bible, in Luke chapter 2, Jesus Christ is worshipped four different times. In one chapter. And he's a baby still. He can't even walk yet. And he's worshipped as God four different times. He's worshipped by angels. Then he's worshipped by shepherds. And then later on in that same chapter, he then is worshipped by a guy named Simeon and a woman named Anna. So four times in one chapter, Jesus the baby, Jesus before he's even started his ministry, is worshipped as God. He has done nothing yet. And he's already being worshipped as God. Now, you might be saying, well, that's whatever, it's Jews. The Jews were expecting a Messiah, so it makes sense that they would be the ones that worshiped him. But in Matthew chapter 2, if you look at the gospel of Matthew, the first people that actually worshiped Jesus, according to Matthew, weren't even Jews. It was Gentiles. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, or wise men, from the east... Not from Jerusalem, they weren't Jewish. From the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to what? Worship him. The man is in diapers. Not talking yet. Not walking yet. And he's already being worshipped, not just by the Jews, but by Gentiles. That's how crazy this is. So I need you to understand that, that one of the reasons why Jesus is God is because of the praise he received before his ministry starts. Once his ministry actually starts, which you might not know, but Jesus' ministry doesn't start until he's 30 years old. His ministry literally only lasted three years. Most of what we know about Jesus happened in those three years. The first 30 years of his life were like radio silent. So he's the most influential human that's ever lived, and we only have three years of what he did. Okay? Well, some of us can live 3,000 years and wouldn't be able to do what he did. In three years, 
is most of where his influence comes from. So Jesus then shows up on the scene and then he starts to be praised, not just before his ministry starts, but then once his ministry starts in Matthew chapter 14, now this is, this is big, Jesus walks on water, stops a storm on the Sea of Galilee. My wife and I, when we, went, when we were in college, we went to Israel. We were on the Sea of Galilee. This is a big piece of water. There's a storm. There, there is, there's waves. The man sends his friends ahead, walks to the boat at night. They're freaked out because they're like, who is that, Chris Angel? You know what I mean? Like they're like, who's, who's this dude walking on the water? So, so they get there, and then, and then when, they, when they arrive, he says, uh, Peter gets out, and Peter starts walking towards him. And then Peter then starts getting distracted because of the winds and the storm and the water, and he starts to sink. Jesus gets on the boat. He stops the storm, and it says that every man on that boat worshiped him. Amen. At the very least, 12 Jewish men. Maybe it might be maybe more. At the very least, 12 Jewish men worship Jesus. Jewish men, monotheistic men, who, couldn't, who would never believe that God was a man, right there on the boat worshiped him. Okay? So again, I'm not minimizing your barriers. I'm just saying these people had very significant barriers, okay? So, so we see that on the boat. But then you, 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 you fast forward a little bit, and in John chapter 20, when Jesus resurrects, uh, 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 Thomas calls him my Lord and my God. Another one of the disciples, my Lord and my God, it says. And then the, the one I want to look at is in, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, says, hey, who do people say that I am? And look what it says in Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied. Some say John the Baptist, a.k.a. Johnny B. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the, the prophets. Then what about you? He asked. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter the leader of the group says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Two things I want you to see. Not only does he say it and none of the other, the other 11 reject it, but Jesus doesn't reject it. You don't see Jesus say, no, no, no. Oh, Chucks, guys, come on. No, no, no. Every time Jesus is worshiped, he accepts it. You know why? Well, the logical reason will tell you that he was actually God. That's why he accepted it. Because there's a place in the Bible where he says you shouldn't worship only, you should only worship God alone. So clearly he, he, he obeyed the Old Testament. So if they worshiped him and he accepted it, then logically it tells us that he was God. Because he wouldn't have accepted it otherwise. Okay? So, so, so you see the, the praise he receives before his ministry starts. You see the praise he receives while his ministry is going. And then after the man resurrects and ascends to heaven, all throughout the epistles, which are the letters that are found in, in, the, in the New Testament, in Titus chapter 2, he's called our Savior and our God. In Hebrews chapter 1, it's ridiculous. In Hebrews chapter 1, God the Father is being quoted, and he's calling Jesus God in Hebrews chapter 1. That's a great source. I would love to hear what God the Father thinks about it. God calls him God. Okay? So you see it all throughout the Bible, Jesus being called God, people, be, people praising God. But you know one of the, 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 the best examples, I think one of the best evidences that Jesus got, that in, in, in the beginning of, of John, John chapter 3, Jesus walks up 
No, sorry, maybe it's John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus walks up to John the Baptist, and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, that's pretty significant that someone's calling him God. But what's even more significant is that John was his cousin. I don't know what your relationship is with your cousins. Okay? I can't get my cousins to say one nice thing about me, let alone call me God. Okay? Then, in James chapter 1, James, who's Jesus' half-brother, Calls him God. When your cousin and your brother call you God, that's big, guys. It says in, 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 in the Gospel of John, I think it's John chapter 6, his siblings are making fun of him because he claimed to be God. They didn't believe him at first. But then James, who was one of the ones making fun of him, after Jesus resurrects, Jesus shows up to James. And then in James 1, he says, he's God. When your brother calls you God, there's no one, listen, listen, if I ever started a cult and I was the head of the cult and I was God, the first person to get on social media and say, don't follow that fool would be my brother. Because <laughs> he knows everything about me. When your brother and your cousin are following you, it gives you an idea of how significant this man was. So you see, you see that, right? You see these people worshiping him. But then one of the things that blows my mind is in John chapter 1, this is after Jesus dies and resurrects and then ascends to heaven. In John chapter 1, John is writing to uh, Jews that are in a Greek context, in a Roman, Greek and Roman, Greco-Roman context. And he says, look what he says in John chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the word. He's talking about Jesus. The word word there in Greek is the word logos. And all the, the Greek scholars and philosophers and Roman philosophers, they were looking for the logos. What's the logos, the reason, the purpose for life? John hijacks that word and says, I have found the Logos. I have found the purpose of life. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God. That's not that controversial yet. Then he says, and the Logos was God. John, a Jew, says Jesus was God. And he was there from the beginning. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So what we see in, in the life of Jesus is that one of the reasons why we believe he's God is because of the praise that he receives. The second reason why we believe, I believe that Jesus is God is because of the people he impacted because of the individuals that Jesus Christ impacted. Listen, Jesus Christ is the most impactful human being that's ever lived. He's so impactful, in fact, that either he impacts you in the, in the, in the ultimate good way or in the ultimate bad way. Jesus shows up, and if you really listen to what Jesus says, you either crown him or you kill him. There's no in-between. You either crown him as God or you kill him as a fool. But there's no in-between. He's the most impactful human that's ever lived. This is why the argument that secular, modern, Western people use bother me so much. Because they'll say, oh, well, I, I think Jesus was a good guy. He's like Buddha and, and like Muhammad and like, you know, uh, uh, fill in the blank with whatever spiritual leader you want to, you know, you want to put in there. And so they, they, they describe Jesus and they put him in the same category as all these other religious leaders. He's, he's a great guy that, that we can learn from. We should take his, his verses and we should tweet them because they're so tweetable. He's such a, such a great moral guy to learn from. Well, here's the problem. The problem is Jesus doesn't allow you to just see him as a good moral teacher. 
And that's why one of the quotes I want to read to you is a very famous quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, there's only three things you can do with Jesus if you really understand what he read. You could either see him as a liar, the greatest liar that's ever lived, a lunatic, the craziest person that's ever lived, or Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. That's the only three categories you can put Jesus in if you actually read the Bible. And I would challenge you to do that. If you're struggling believing it, read the Bible yourself. Don't take my word for it. Read the first four books of the Bible, of, of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and take Jesus' words for what he says they are. And then you tell me if he's just a good moral person. If Jesus really said what he said, Lewis says you could only treat him as a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Look what, look what Lewis says. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. So just in case that's how you view him, if you really read what the man said, he cannot be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. See, but we're Americans. I don't like being constrained. I'm not going to make a choice. I'm going to put Jesus on my religious leader shelf, right next to Gandhi and right next to Buddha and right next to Muhammad. I can learn from him and I can tweet him, but I have a nice spot for him right there. He doesn't let you do it. Look at the rest of the quote. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Then he says, Listen to this, but let us not come with any, any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. The only people that treat Jesus as a good moral teacher are the people who haven't read the Bible. Are the people who are just hearsay of what Jesus, oh, Jesus stood for this and Jesus stood for that. Did you, have you read the Bible? If you actually read the Bible, either he's the greatest liar that's ever lived, the craziest person, the greatest lunatic that's ever lived, or he's actually who he says he is. But you can't have him as a moral teacher. Either you worship him or you reject him. Either you crown him or you kill him. So, so let's look at these. Let's logically walk through some of these, right? So the first option that we have before us is that Jesus was a liar. He could have been a liar. Let's go that route for a second. Let's say that Jesus is the greatest liar and hypocrite and deceiver that's ever lived. Look at this quote from, from Josh McDowell. He says, this is, if Jesus knew he was not God, then he was lying. But if he was a liar, then he also was a hypocrite as he told others to be honest, whatever the cost. So he wouldn't be living what he said because he, he told you to be honest. If that's the case, then we can say that, that would make Jesus unspeakably evil. The, the, the most evil person that's ever lived, and he says why? As he deliberately told others to forsake their religious beliefs and trust him for their eternal destiny. And if Jesus knew he was lying, then he was a fool as his claims led to his crucifixion. So, so, so you can't say the man is just a good moral teacher. Either he was the biggest deceiver ever or the craziest person that's ever lived. So let's go. So that's the liar route, right? This, the most evil human being that's ever lived if he's a liar. 
Because of how many people he's taken with him. Okay? Now, now, now let's go the other route, right? So there's the liar route, then there's, there's the lunatic route. And this is a philosopher. His name is Peter Kraft. And look what he says about Jesus being a lunatic. He says, a measure of your insanity, listen to this, is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you really are. So one of the ways you can tell if you're crazy or not is the gap between who you think you are and who you actually are. He says, if I think I am the greatest philosopher in America, I am only an arrogant fool. If I think I'm Napoleon, I'm probably over the edge. If I think I'm a butterfly, I am fully embarked from the sunny shores of sanity. <laughs> Listen to this. But if I think I am God, I am even more insane because the gap between anything finite and the infinite God is even greater than the gap between two finite things, even a man or a butterfly. So if Jesus Christ really believed he was God and he wasn't, the reason why he's the craziest human being that's ever lived, the, the, the greatest lunatic that's ever lived, is because, he, is because of the gap between who he was and who he thought he was. So you have to ask yourself the question, who is Jesus Christ? It's the same question Jesus asked Peter and the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Not what does the media say. Not, not what does your, your, your political party say. Who do you say that I am? He's either the greatest liar who's ever lived, the greatest lunatic that's ever lived, or he is exactly who he says he is. But you can't call him a good moral teacher because he doesn't allow you to do it. So by the time you leave today, I want you to either love Jesus with all your heart or hate him with all your heart. But you can't be in the middle. That option is not there for you. It's not. So, so think about it. Based on everything I've just said about Jesus, and there's more arguments coming, which of the three do you think is most probable? Think for a second. If he is a deceiver, how was he able to consistently keep the lies all the way through? And how is he the most influential person that's ever lived? And if he's a lunatic, lunatics can take some people with him, right? Charles Manson. But no one here is thinking Charles Manson is God. Which of the three is most probable? He's a liar, a lunatic, or is he Lord? That's the question Jesus is asking you. Who do you say that I am? It's the most important question you will ever answer. And I say that with no exaggeration. It's the most important question you will ever answer. The Jesus, the, the people Jesus impacted is, is proof that he was God. Here's the thing, guys, here's the thing. I, I, gotta, I gotta just preach to you for a second, okay? I don't know what Jesus will do in your life if you accept him or when you accept him as God. I don't know. But what I can tell you is what Jesus has done in the life of other people when they've done it. So you see, when, when Peter, listen to this, when Peter accepted Jesus as God, Peter went from being a coward to being courageous. When Thomas accepted Jesus as, as God, he went from being a doubter to being a believer. When Paul accepted Jesus as God, he went from being a murderer of the church to being a martyr of the church. When the woman at the well accepted Jesus as God, she went from being a broken woman to a beloved daughter. 
When Zacchaeus accepted Jesus as God, he went from being a shady thief to being a generous giver. When the apostle John accepted Jesus as God, he went from being a a son of thunder to being the apostle of love. When Will Franco accepted Jesus as God, I went from a people-pleasing, woman-worshipping, success-needing pagan to being a God-loving, grace-needing pastor. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know what will happen to you if you believe Jesus is God. But I tell you, something's going to happen. Something will happen. So let's go to the three points again. First reason why Jesus is God is because of the praise he received. The second reason is because of the people he impacted. And the third reason is because of the power he displayed. Jesus Christ displayed power like no one else in human history. He, he, he claims to have power, which we've seen a lot of people do that, but then he actually displays the power that he claims to have. So, so let's talk about some of the claims that Jesus makes. Jesus is so powerful, okay, that, that, that in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 7, he forgives someone's sins. He says, hey, 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 dude, uh, 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 you're forgiven. Your sins are clean. And you're like, well, what's the big deal about that? That happens in Catholicism all the time. <laughs> well, the problem is, is that that's not in the Bible anywhere. No man has the right to forgive anybody. Now, listen to this. If someone sins against you, you can forgive that person. That's personal forgiveness. But that's not the, the, the forgiveness that Jesus is offering. Jesus is talking to people he's never met. And he says, hey, dude, yeah, hey, your sins are forgiven, man. You're good. In general, clean slate, you're good. When when he says it, every time he does it, the religious leaders are ticked off because they're like, how dare you do that? Only God can do that. And what Jesus does that nobody expected is he takes the religious system of Judaism and by forgiving people without a temple, without a sacrifice, without blood being shed, he's just tearing down the whole system. And so the religious people are like, if he starts doing this, we're unemployed. They don't go to me anymore. I can't forgive people because he's doing it for me, and you can't do that, Jesus. You can't just be forgiving people. Only God can forgive people. And Jesus says, exactly. Think about this. Let me give you an example because, like I said, for us, the forgiving of sins, we minimize sin so much that, and forgiveness so much that doesn't mean anything to us. But, but let me give you an example, a modern example. Pretend you're a college student, right? And you're in college. Let's say you're going to Notre Dame or, 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 or uh, Northern Illinois University, wherever you want to go. And you're a junior, and you're walking down uh, the campus, and you're thinking about your debt. You have $80,000 in debt. And you're walking, you're like, I can't believe I have a year left of this thing. How am I going to pay for this? I don't even know how this is going to work. Some person walks up to you and says, hey, hey, just so you know, your debts are forgiven. Oh, and you know what? You know what? Not only are your debts forgiven, but here's your degree. You don't even got to finish the last year. Here's your degree. You're already loved. You're already accepted. You're done. You'll be like, what? For real? You know who would get the most angry about that? The university that you're a part of. Because they're going to be like, whoa, you still owe me money, bro. I don't know who that dude is, but he can't just pardon your, your debt like that. And you still need a year to get a degree in my school. We have a system here. We have a protocol here. We have steps here. You can't just skip the steps. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus shows up and says, hey, the temple is not needed. The sacrifice is not needed. The priests aren't needed because I came to do all of it. 
The fact that Jesus has the audacity to forgive sin proves that he's God. And to prove that he can forgive sin, he ends up healing whatever problem the person has. He heals their physical problem and then heals their spiritual problem. But, but just in case you don't believe I did this, I can prove it because I did that. Right? So, so, so his power is displayed in the things that he claims. You know there's a part, it's in uh, Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out uh, his disciples. And, and by this time, he had more than 12. He had, it was towards the 70s. He sends all these guys out. And 72 disciples come back, and they're telling Jesus all the things they did. And we did this, and we did that. And they're all excited about all the things that God did. Jesus, in his response to these people, makes a side comment. Just a side comment. And it just shows you how powerful the man is. You know what he says? He says, hey, hey, you guys are, are you know, taking demons out and casting demons. Well, let me tell you this. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, you, a lot of us would read right past that like, oh, whatever, I don't even know what that means. Think about this. In Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter in the Bible, Satan had already fallen from heaven because he's a serpent in the garden, right? He had already sinned. God had already kicked him out of heaven. Jesus casually says, I was there when Satan got kicked out. And that wasn't even the point of what he was saying. It was a side comment. I was there. Who says that? Only God can say that. Okay? So, so the, the things that he claims, but the most incredible thing Jesus claims, and you can put the verse up in John 10. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. You're like, well, big whoop, bro. You know how many religious leaders have died? All of them have died. Big whoop. 10 out of 10 people died, Jesus. So what, why, why does that make you special? Well, he tells you. Only to take it up again. No one, because Jesus looks like a big victim in all that, right? I'm being dragged here and there. No one, he says, takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So Jesus, the person who seems like the ultimate victim is actually the ultimate victor. And he tells you ahead of time. Jesus tells these fools, and I thought they were fools, but that's, they're just idiots, okay? He tells them multiple times, yo, hey, hey, listen, dude, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back. I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back. I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back. And he dies, and they're like, ah, oh, dang it, man. We bet on the wrong horse, bro. I knew it. Come on, man. But here's the thing. There's a part of me that understands it, though. Because up to that point, when someone dies, they died. So no matter what he said, it made sense why. Logically, when someone dies, they die. So of course they're going to think he's gone. Because that's what people do. They don't come back. Jesus says, I'm going to come back. And then he does. Which is why the, the second part, which is so incredible, is that Jesus is not just the, the power that he claims to have. It's the power that he actually displays. Jesus, it, it, here's what's so funny. I, I was looking at Matthew chapter 8 because I knew there was a story in the Bible where Jesus calms the storm and the, and the disciples worshiped him. But I, I went to Matthew chapter 8, and, and it's when he's sleeping in the boat. And then they wake him up. They're like, there's a storm, there's a storm. He calms the storm. And I was expecting that to be the passage because I, I specifically remember them worshiping him on a boat. But then if you look at the story, they don't actually worship him. Like they're in awe of him, but they don't actually worship him. So I thought, maybe I'm wrong. A few chapters later, that's when Jesus does the whole walk on water thing and does it all over again. They needed him to do it twice to worship him. 
Twice. Jesus had to calm two storms for these fools to worship. Hey, 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 rain. It's done. You know, all of us do the rain, rain, go away prayer, right? Like, uh, rain, rain, go away, come back another day, right? I remember thinking I had tons of power when I was little praying that prayer. Like, oh, it worked. Now Jesus is like, hey, stop. Shh. It's over. And anyone who was in that region will tell you that the storms in the Sea of Galilee were horrendous. It's the way it's set up, the way it's situated, the way the winds would come. It would just be, it'd be horrible. And Jesus just says, no, no, stop. Twice. And it's only after the second time they worship the dude. Then, to prove that he has power, Jesus' friend dies. He waits four days and then shows up at the dude's party, funeral. Party, funeral, however you want to. Maybe you didn't like him. He shows up super late. He's been buried for four days. What are you doing here, Jesus? Oh, I'm here to bring Lazarus back. Now, some people say, oh, well, here's why Jesus was able to bring Lazarus back. Lazarus wasn't really dead. Well, here's the problem with that. If there's ever been a culture in human history that knew someone was dead, was this culture. Because in, in the first century, literally, babies weren't even named until they were five years old because so many babies died before they were five. If there's a culture that knew death and knew somebody was dead, was this culture. So Lazarus was dead for four days. Jesus shows up and says, come on, man. Lazarus comes out. And you know he smelled like booty too, man, because he'll be dead for <laughs> I sleep for four hours and smell like bug. Can you imagine like four, four I'm like, dude, let's go take a shower, brother. Whoop. Just come on out, man. You're not dead anymore. So then, 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 then remember, with Lazarus, we, we don't really know when he dies, but we know he dies again. He didn't bring him back forever. He, he comes back and then he, maybe he lived another 20 years. We don't know. But what's crazy is then it, when, what you see is in John chapter 20, Jesus, remember in John 10, John 10 said, I'll give my life up and I'll take it up again. Then he proves it. And in John 20, he shows up and there's one disciple that doesn't believe it. No, 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 no. This can't be true. No, I don't believe it. Again, just to show you, these aren't primitive people who just believed anything because people don't come back from the dead. So Thomas, being a normal human being, was like, no, he didn't come back. I don't believe you. Jesus says he was going to come back, and then he does. And he shows up and says, hey, look. And this says, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and, and believe, Thomas said. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my Jesus Christ said he would come back from the dead, and then he did it. I, I, I get impressed. I like watching NBA basketball. I get impressed when Steph Curry shoots a three and turns around before it goes in. And I'm like, how did he know? I'm blown away by that because the dude called his shot. Jesus Christ called death and said, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back. Now, now, I don't know about you, but if I'm hanging out with somebody, who tells me they're going to die and come back, and then they do it, I'm going to ride with that dude. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but that's just me. Okay? Three days the man's dead, comes back. Three days. Actually, I would argue that this resurrection 
And I think that's why Easter is so important. This resurrection is the most important part of this argument that we're making. So if, so if this question, is Jesus really God? If this question is the center of this series, the resurrection is the center of the center. Because listen, if you don't believe Jesus resurrected, then who cares what else he said? But if he did, then now everything else matters. And look at this quote from, from Dr. Tim Keller. He says, listen, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? So think about it. How many people are offended by what he says about marriage or, 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 or pregnancy or purity or whatever? You're like, oh, that's, that offends me. I, I'm politically over here. I don't agree with anybody. He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, who cares? Why are you so bothered by him? He's just a Jew that died. Who cares? You could literally ignore everything else I said if you're not willing to consider this. Because this is the center of the center. He says the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, because who cares if you do that, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If the man actually came back, then you got to listen. If he didn't, then who cares? He's just like any other religious leader who lived and died. Nothing special about him at all. Okay? So, go back to the points. First reason why Jesus is God is because of the praise he received. The second reason is the people he impacted. The third reason is the power he displayed. The fourth reason is the prophecy he fulfilled. The prophecy he fulfilled. Now, if you're, if you're a nerd here today, this point is for you, okay? For all the nerds in the house, congratulations, okay? Here's what we see. And you may, you may know this, you may not know this, but it's about to get real nerdy in here, okay? In the Old Testament, which is the Jewish part, right, which is the part of the Bible that the Jews believe, there are 333 prophecies about the, 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 the Messiah that was going to come. 333 prophecies that one individual had to meet and had to fulfill in order to be considered the son of God. 333. Let me walk you through a list here for a second and give you an idea of just how ridiculous this was, okay? In Genesis chapter 3, it says that Adam and Eve have just sinned. God is kicking them out of the garden, and he says the only way you're going to get back in a garden is if another Adam essentially shows up is faithful in another garden and lets you back into the original garden, okay? But he says something very partic in particular to the, to the serpent. He says to Satan, he says, the seed of the woman, from the woman, a seed will come that will destroy you. Why is that significant? The reason why that's significant is because any other person that's ever lived, every person that's ever been born is from the seed of the man, okay? Jesus Christ is the only human being ever that came from the seed of the woman. Here's why. Because he didn't have a father. He, it was virgin birth. So that's a very specific thing to look for. Seed of the woman. No man involved at all. Okay? Oh, everyone else is a seed of a man. I am a seed of a man. And if you don't believe me, it's the, the black dude sitting back there by, the, by the, the Negro back there. That's my dad. Okay? He just came back from vacation, so he's a little darker than me, but it's fine. Okay? Seed of a woman. Then you go, you, go, you go forward a few chapters. 
Then we are told that this individual must come from the line of Shem. So, so Noah has three sons. This person must come from the line of Shem. So he takes all of humanity and you, you, one-third of humanity now. This person can only come from one-third of humanity. Then we go a little further, Genesis 12. He must be from the family of Abraham. Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. The Bible says that it can only be from Ishmael. So the one-third, you take one-half from one-third. Okay, let's get in more specific. Then you, 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 you move forward. Isaac ends up having two kids, two twins, Esau and Jacob. The Bible says it's going to be through Jacob. So you take a half from the half. It's getting, it's getting, it's getting smaller here. Jacob has 12 sons. And it says that Judah will be who this person comes from. So you take 11 twelfths from the half. Okay? Then you, you, you move on, and, and, and from, the, 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 from uh, Judah comes David. And, and David was the son of Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. And we're told that it's through David that he comes from. So you take the 11, you take, from the 11 twelfths, you take one, uh, uh, seven eighths away from the 11 twelfths. Guys, come on. You see where I'm going here? Then it tells us that this individual must be born in Bethlehem, which historically Bethlehem has never had more than a thousand people living in it. So a town that never hit a thousand is the town that this individual must come from. Then in Daniel, it says that he must arrive before the temple is destroyed. So that already put a timeline on it because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Jesus died in 33 AD. He had to come before the temple was destroyed. He even gives us a timeline. Okay? That's how specific this thing is. And here's the thing. Jews, the reason why there are still Jews today, people who believe in Judaism, is because they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They don't believe that he actually fulfilled all the prophecies. Here's the problem. The Jews are waiting for a Messiah who is never going to come. And here's why. I'm not trying to be uh, pessimistic here. Remember, it says in, the, I haven't told you this, but in Mecca, in Micah 5.2, it says that he will have to be born in the city of Bethlehem. So the Jews don't think the Messiah has arrived yet. The Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. Why is that a problem? The reason why that's a problem is because when we went to Jerusalem, when we went to, we went to Israel, my wife and I, we did a trip to Bethlehem. And when we were about five miles out, all the Jews that were on the tour bus had to get out because Bethlehem is ruled by Arabs now. And a Jew can't come within five miles of the city that the Messiah is supposed to be born in. So, 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 so riddle me this. How is a Jew going to be born in a city that you can't even go into? And, and, and the, the timeline's up because the person had to be born before the temple was destroyed. That temple's been gone. They don't even have a temple. Jews don't even have a temple anymore. The, the, temple, well, the, the temple used to be is now the Dome of the Rock, that gold building that you see in Jerusalem. It is not even a temple anymore. It's a Muslim mosque now. So it's almost like God said, he arrived and it's over. You don't have to believe it, but don't be looking for another one because he's, he's, he already arrived. Okay? Let me, let me put it to you in, some other, in, a, in another term. Uh, actually, put the quote up first, and then I'll go back to the... Uh, there's, a, there's a guy. His name's Peter Stoner. Now, now, now I know his name is... I know you'd be like, I don't think this guy's a credible source. The last name is Stoner, but, but, but bear with me. The guy is legit, okay? 
you know, high school was tough for him, but it's fine. <laughs> a mathematician named Peter Stoner says this. Peter Stoner calculated, listen to this, the probability of just eight of the 333. So we're not looking at all of them. He only looked at eight. We're not even in double digits, guys. Eight of the 333 prophecies. He, the, he calculated the probability of just eight messianic prophecies being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Multiplying all these probabilities together produces a number of one to the 10th to the 28th. One in 10 to the 28th. Listen, dividing this number by an estimate of the number of people who have lived since the time of these prophecies, 88 billion, produces a probability of one in 10 to the 17th power. And I'm not going to tell you all those zeros, but that's one in 100 quadrillion. For only eight, not 28, not 188, for one person just to do eight of them, that would be the number. So, so let me give you an idea of how crazy this is. This is the illustration that's used. If you were to take the whole state of Texas, just to give you how big those, that number actually is, think about how big the state of Texas is. And you were to fill up the state of Texas two feet deep of silver coins, the entire surface of the state of Texas, two feet deep of silver coins, and someone were to randomly take one of the coins and put an X on it, okay? Then you put a blindfold on someone and you put them in San Antonio and say, walk all these coins and without looking, pick the one coin that has an X on it. That's the probability of just eight of them being met. Okay? Jesus fulfilled 333. Just in the book of Zechariah alone, it says that, that one of the prophecies is that he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Even the transportation is laid out. Not a, vid not a minivan, uh, not a Jetta, uh, 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 not, a, not a, a beetle. He's going to run into Jerusalem on a donkey. Then in Zechariah chapter 11, it says exactly how much money he will be betrayed with. 30 shekels of silver. Not $29.99. Not 30 shekels of gold. 30 shekels of silver. A friend will betray him for 30 shekels of silver and the money will be used to buy a potter's field. And that's only the book of Zechariah. 333 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So you don't have to call him God. I'm not going to force you to. But I would argue that it takes more faith to not call him God than to call him God based on the numbers. Okay? So we've looked at the praise, the people, the power, the prophecy, and I want to conclude this morning by looking at the problem. Listen, the ultimate reason why Jesus Christ is God, and I would argue it's the greatest reason, the greatest proof that he is God, is the problem that he came to solve. Yep. The problem that he came to solve. Now, now what, do I, what do I mean by that, right? Listen, if you're, if you're here and you've, if you, you're kind of new to this whole uh, uh, religion thing, Christianity thing, you might think on the surface that Christianity is just like every other religion. Christianity is just like Islam. It's just like Judaism. It's just like Mormonism. It's just like Catholicism. It's just like uh, fill in the blank. New Ageism, whatever religion you want to put in there, right? You think, oh, it's just like every other religion. It's 
People trying to be good in order to make their way up to a deity. That's what Christianity is. But that's not how Christianity is. Listen, every other religion on planet Earth is a ladder. So in Judaism, there's a ladder. I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this, and then I'll climb up the ladder and maybe get to Yahweh. In Islam, it's a ladder. I got I to gotta pray five times a day. I got I to gotta do my, my journey to Mecca. I got to go to, I gotta go to uh, 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 the mosque, and then you go up, 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 and then when you get to the top, there's Allah. Every other world religion is a ladder, and you have to do something in order to get up that ladder, and if you do enough, maybe you'll get to the top of the ladder, and there's your deity. Christianity is not a ladder. Christianity is a cross. Listen, listen. Christianity is different from every other religion, and here's why. The reason why Christianity is different is because Christianity says, every other religion says, if you try hard enough, you can work your way up to God. Christianity says, there's nothing you can do, and so God had to come down to you. That's totally different, guys. You can't call Christianity the same because it's not. It's the only religion that says you can't do it, so someone else had to do it. That's why Christianity is different, because with every other world religion will tell you, hey, there's a problem, but you can do something about the problem. Christianity says, listen, the reason why you can't do something about the problem, the reason why you can't be the solution is because you're the problem. How can you fix the problem when you're the problem? The solution has to come from the outside, because the problem comes from the inside out. You're the problem, and only someone else can be the solution. You know, one of my favorite quotes, and I'm going to paraphrase it here and add a little bit to it. One of my favorite quotes is when, when, when this quote says that since God knew what our greatest problem is, he sent the thing that we needed. Not the thing that we wanted. He sent the thing that we, we needed. And here's essentially what the quote says. He says, if, if our greatest problem was chemical, God would have sent us a chemist. If our greatest problem was financial, God would have sent us a financial planner. If our greatest problem was electrical, God would have sent us an electrician. If our greatest problem was psychological, God would have sent us a psychiatrist. If our greatest problem was political, God would have sent us a politician. But since our greatest problem was spiritual, God sent us a savior. Amen. Amen. Man, am I preaching right now? Because it feels like it's, it's, it's kind of dead in here right now, okay? It's, it, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It, it just feels weird to me right now, okay? Because here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing. What God saw when he looked down at you, he knew you didn't need another religion. You didn't need another religion. You needed a, a redeemer. He knew that what you needed was not steps. What you needed was a savior. What you needed was not a model. What you needed was mercy. What you needed was not inspiration. What you needed was intervention. What you needed was not application. What you needed was atonement. What you needed was not resources. What you needed was a rescue. Come on, church. Come on. How do you not believe this? This is crazy to me. It's not even logical anymore. This is crazy. Jesus is God. He came to do it for you and for me. And listen, listen, you might be asking, why does Jesus need to be God? The reason why Jesus Christ needed to be God, he was human, but he was God. The reason why he had to be both, he needed to be human in order to relate to us. He needed to be human in order to represent us. But he needed to be God because it's only then that he can rescue us, that he can redeem us, he can restore us, and he can resurrect us. That's the only reason why I do what I do here. Because Jesus Christ is God. I want to die one day, and I want to stand up and tell Jesus, all I ever told people was that you were God. That's it. That's all I ever did. 
Because it's the only thing that, that changes you. It's the only thing. When you get it, 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 it does something in you. It does something in you. Listen, listen. There's two ways you can respond to this message. There's two ways that people are responding right now. Okay? The first way you can respond is you can say, oh, you know what? I don't know if Jesus is really God because I'm not really a, a believer in anything. I don't actually believe in anything. I don't actually worship anything. Well, well, here's the problem. According to Romans chapter 1, God created us to worship something. So if Jesus isn't your God, you better believe something else is your God. So maybe you're worshiping your career. Maybe you're worshiping your family. Maybe you're worshiping your education. Maybe you're worshiping your retirement. Maybe you're worshiping your past or your future or your present. But I promise you, you are worshiping something. And one of my good friends, Angel, he was here in the, in the previous service. He said that in his youth group, they have this, this room where there's a steel cage. Literally, it's like a steel fence cage, fenced-in cage. And they have this thing called Waffle Wednesdays where all these teenagers from the Miami uh, area come into his church. And they walk in and they're like, hey, would you, you guys want to see something cool? And so they bring them into this cage and they close the door. And then there's a steel cage. And then on, on, at, the, at the top of the cage, there's all these keys. Keys, hundreds of keys. And here's what they tell the teens. They're like, this cage is like life. And, and every single one of us is in a cage. And here's what we do because we all worship something. You might not worship God, but you have a God. Here's what we do. We look up at the keys and we're like, I'm going to try the career key. Oh, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to try the, the marriage key. Oh, I'm going to try the money key. Oh, I'm going to try the success key. And you know what the worst thing God can do? You're reaching, you're reaching, you're reaching. The worst thing God can do is give you the key that you're reaching for. Because then you get the key and you go to the door and you can't get out. Because there's only one key that gets you out. And his name is Jesus. And so listen, listen, whatever God you're worshiping, whether it's your family or your career or your looks or whatever it is, whatever God you're worshiping, here's the thing about every other God. Every other God you worship will either die before you, because it's a person, or a career. Every other God will either die before you, will die with you. So when you die, it dies. So it will die before you, it will die with you. Jesus Christ is the only God who dies for you. He doesn't die before you, and he doesn't die with you. He dies for you. Now, the other response you can have, so the first, people, the first response is people are like, I don't, I, don't, I don't worship anything. Well, you do, and you have a God, and there's a key you're searching, and it's not going to open the door, right? But, 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 then, but then the other response are the people who are like, man, this is great, Pastor Will. You tell them, amen. You know, I come to church every once in a while. I'm religious, especially when things get tough. You know, I, I try to be more religious. I'm trying to save myself. And you don't got to convince me Jesus is God. Amen, brother. I believe you tell these pagans about how Jesus is God. Listen, if you're sitting here today and you believe that Jesus is God, let me ask you a question. Then why don't you live like it? Stop telling me that Jesus is God if you don't live like it. If church only comes up when you got time, and God only comes up when you're in trouble, and all you're actually doing is saving yourself and then just sprinkling some Jesus in it to make you feel better. If you believe Jesus is God, then why don't you live like it? Jesus is not an example to follow. He's a savior to believe in. He's not a deity to respect. He's a deliverer to rely on. That's the question. Is Jesus really God? I would argue that one day, you can leave today and say, I don't think he's God. I can't force you to believe it. But you know what the Bible says in Philippians 2? That one day, 
Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So regardless of whether you believe it or not, regardless of whether you claim it today, you're going to claim it one day. So you either claim it and adore him as your savior, or at the end, you're going to claim it and acknowledge him as your judge. But you're going to say it. And my prayer is that you would do it today. Is Jesus really God? Well, he could be a liar. But that doesn't make sense. He could be a lunatic. That doesn't really hold a lot of wires. So that only leaves one option. He's Lord. He's exactly who he says he is. The question is, which is the question Peter, Jesus asked Peter is, who do you say he is? It's the most important question you'll ever answer. Let's pray.